Good morning. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Good morning, Brett McGarry. What is this? Space Oddity. Ah, little David Bowie. There Very is good. a Tesla Roadster hurling through space as we speak. Thanks to Elon Musk. Yeah, that's neat. That's <laughs> so crazy. I saw a post on this on Facebook yesterday. A buddy of mine was saying that uh, you think the future is that far away. The, and then Elon Musk sends this car into space that's going to go, what is it, going to go around Mars and then come back that's to Earth? That's the plan. The future is here. That's the plan. The future is here. My buddy is in uh, Miami right now. He tweeted out a picture of the vapor trail or the chem trail, depending on, you know, who you're talking to. <laughs> the vapor trail <laughs> of the Falcon Heavy and of the launch yesterday morning, quite spectacular. You want to hear some audio of this? Yeah. The crowds were crazy. It was like a, almost like a rock and roll concert. Five, four, three, two, So if you go online, you can find the video of how this all came together and how the rockets work and how some of them, the, the jet boosters came back. Two of the three of them kind of just landed themselves on uh, on landing pads. The third one was supposed to land in the middle of the ocean. That didn't work out so well. And then... <laughs> where did it go? <laughs> it missed its landing spot. They're not exactly sure where it went. Oh, but it's somewhere in the ocean. Somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Either it's in pieces or it's in the ocean. I thought you meant that it landed in a metropolitan, no, no, metropolitan area. It's or okay. Something. It's all good. Metropolitan. Uh, yeah, me- metropolitan. Metropolitan is uh, metropolitan. Uh, yeah, that's the word I'm going to go with <laughs> that's today. That's the new word of the day. <laughs> yeah, metropolitan. metropolitan. <laughs> Look it up on Google now. And uh, yeah, there is Elon Musk's uh, Tesla Roadster. I think it was the fourth one ever made. It's his own personal vehicle, and he's got this dummy in a spacesuit. And uh, you can see live pictures from outer space. And uh, David Bowie's uh, Space Oddity, I believe, is being played over and over and over again. We were talking yesterday about how to stay awake on a road trip. I don't know if that's the way to go about it, but, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Pretty mellow song for that. Yeah, well, hey, I guess if you haven't got a passenger clamoring for you to change the channel, you might as well go with that. Anyway, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about that. Uh, later on this morning, jo- Jackson Prosco from uh, Global National has a story all about that. And it just reminds me of when the space, ch- uh, space Shuttle Columbia was launched the first day, its first three-day journey. And it just captivated in most of the planet, certainly North America, this idea of going back to space and a reusable space vessel that could come back and land and be launched again. Uh, I I think I skipped three days of school so I could watch everything <laughs> I could watch on TV about it. Yeah, well, we just talked yesterday to uh, to Tristan Field Jones about this this Trappist One uh, galaxy or star system that p- could potentially have water, and he, right. you know, he's saying that we should be thinking more about space exploration and what's what is out there. So the fact that Elon Musk has sort of taken the reins here to try to come up with ways to to get stuff into space for potential uh, future moon missions or missions to Mars, I think is uh, rather extraordinary. Although, you know, maybe, do you think this Tesla is equipped with one of his uh, flamethrowers? 
I suspect not. <laughs> I'm not sure who would work it. Yeah. Uh, maybe by ro- remote control. Who knows with Elon Musk? It's kind of frightening, right? This guy has so many ideas and so much money. He could really take over the world if he felt so inclined. Uh, this is a giant step for people kind. Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay, I don't know that I necessarily have a problem with people kind. I've often wondered when, if you, when you say the word mankind, is that is that out of date? Is that wrong? Maybe humankind is the word. It's not the people kind. It's the way that he asserted the word people kind into the conversation. Which We're I talking found about rude. Prime Minister Trudeau, and it's interesting that this happened about six days ago. It's just now catching on in the media in Canada because the Americans have weighed in. Fox and Friends had a guest from the University of Toronto. Piers Morgan weighed in on this. But Brett, do you remember yesterday we were talking about uh, the cattle industry here in Manitoba? Yeah. Well, I caught myself yesterday on a word that I wasn't sure was appropriate in this day and age. I can play a clip of that for you as well. Brian, would that limit the options that Manitoba cattlemen would have and cattle people, I guess I should say, uh, <laughs> people who produce cattle? Uh, let's go with that. Uh, uh, cattle people? I've never heard that terminology before, but I found myself in the middle of that sentence, in the middle of that word going, should I be saying cattlemen? <laughs> I don't know. Is this a road too far or are we just being more... Uh, polite people call it some people call it political correctness have we gone too far and are how far away are we from Manitoba becoming people Toba <laughs> we'd like to hear know what you think about it you can text us at 204-780-6868 you can email gmac at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com gmac by the way spelled g-m-a-c-k at cjob.com we will be discussing that a little bit further as well and uh, Drex on the shift uh, at about 4.50 this morning, 4.52, I think, to be precise, he had a take on it as well. If you want to go to cjob.com and check out the audio vault, he weighed in on the uh, the people kind, humankind, mankind, whatever, however you want to go about it. I The way that it, it came up was in a town hall where a young woman was trying to ask him a question, and he interrupted her. After she said mankind, and he said, no, we like to say people kind around here. Who's we? Who's this we? And this then royal he's, we he's throwing around. And then he said, we, we see, we can all learn from each other. And I just, I sort of, the way that he said that, I thought, one, it's rude to interrupt her. Although she apparently had been nattering on for about five minutes. So I have not seen the full audio, but maybe he was just trying to find a way to get her to get on with it, as we used to say around here. And... <laughs> Uh, the, but the way he said, see, we can all learn from each other. It just, I don't know, it, it struck me as kind of uh, just rude and sort of pretentious. Has this been the downside of the town halls with Prime Minister Trudeau? Is that, you know, some people say it's the teacher, the professorial sort of side of Justin Trudeau, that he can come across as fairly elitist, fairly condescending, even though he's trying to be a man of the people by mingling and interacting with them and taking their questions, all questions, you know, seems to be the more controversial, the better. He seems to like the hecklers, planted or otherwise. And that's another conversation that people are having, you know, are some of these hecklers actually plants? But he does come across as extremely condescending at times when he is interacting with these people and correcting them on either their grammar or something that 
I have to tell you, I've never heard anyone say people kind. I've never heard that word before until I heard that clip. No, and you, he, he was kind of giggling along, and you, you have to wonder if he was being playful. But the way he did it, it sounded like he was trying to be playful, but at the same time he was annoyed and just wanted to get her to shut up. And uh, then when he threw that in, see, we can all learn from each other. It just that, 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 To me, that struck me as his annoyance coming through, but he was trying to mask it in a way where it wasn't overt. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he does the, he rolls up the sleeves and takes the coat off and tries to, I mean, that's exactly how Jeff Courier described it with us last week. He said, he, this is how, where he shines in these town halls. But, uh, it's when you're, I mean, he is elite. He's, he's not, of a, course he's, he's never been, uh, you know, a normal person, no, right? Silver spoon, right. Yeah. Uh, growing up and in government homes, etc. And so I wonder if this is where some of the shine rubs off. Now, if he was joking, was he as joking as much as Donald Trump was when he called the Democrats? Democrats that didn't stand during his State of the Union address treasonous. Mm. You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, some people calling them treasonous. Maybe, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> really? Mackling McGarry on 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you on this Wednesday morning hump day. Last night, Joe Biden was on CNN, a feature interview with uh, Chris Cuomo. And a lot of people wondering if maybe this is the start of the 2020 election for Biden. Oh. Questions about whether or not he will run for president. Uh, he took a few shots at the sitting president, but Joe Biden, who really was famous for his gaffes for years and years uh, before becoming vice president in Barack Obama's administration, um, eloquently, I would suggest, called the president out on his... Propensity for telling the truth, shall we call it that? Well, let's hear what he had to say. The first president to make a full-throated, unvarnished attack on the entirety of the FBI. Not going after J. Edgar Hoover, who was one person in the FBI and exonerated. This, was, this is to discredit the FBI and discredit his own Justice Department. You know, look, I spent a lot of time traveling around the world. What do you think they're thinking in Moscow? This is doing everything that Putin ever wanted. Sowing doubt about whether or not our justice system is fair, sowing doubt about whether or not there is anything that's remotely consistent with our Constitution, it's just, it's just, it's a disaster. You think he should sit down with the special counsel? If I were the president's lawyer, I would probably tell him not to sit down with the special counsel. Why? Because... Uh, and they subpoena you and you wind up in front of a grand jury without yeah, a lawyer. Yeah, and, uh, and if you... Uh, they, uh, you're in a situation where um, the president has some difficulty with precision. Um, that <laughs> is one the of the most subtle things I've ever heard you <laughs> and, say. Uh, and one of the things that I, uh, I would worry about if I were his lawyer is him saying something that was just simply not true without him even planning to be, uh, um, to be disingenuous. Do you think he has that little control over whether he tells the truth or not? I just, I, I, I just marvel at some of the things he says and does. Like, what, two days ago, anybody didn't stand up and clap for him was un-American and then maybe even treasonous? I they mean, say it was tongue-in-cheek. Democrats can't take a joke. Well, let me tell you, he's a joke. Joe Biden on CNN last night, uh, some difficulty with precision. Put that one in your, uh, in your kit for calling someone a liar for future reference. 
Mackling McGarry. We've welcomed into the studio Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Behind the Glass Jerry, and we welcome back from her adventure. I don't know if she went to outer space, but uh, far enough away. Shanalee Vidal, great to have you back, SLV. Thank you. So uh, you were talking about your adventures to Great Britain and the idea that maybe Manchester, England isn't all that tourist friendly. I wonder how tourist friendly we will be viewed as if we do as city CAO Doug McNeil suggested yesterday and remove nearly one quarter of the parking meters around town and eventually all of them, Brett McGarry. Yeah, it's all in an effort to save the city $300,000 annually and toss the aging pay stations to the curb. Winnipeg Parking Authority's policy analyst Colin Stewart says 144 of the 537 meters could go within the next three to five years. So that means you will need to pull out your smartphone to pay for parking instead of using a physical meter. So today, we're having coffee talking about pay parking meters being removed. And why don't we start on the phone with Kathy Kennedy, a.k.a. KK. What do you think about this, KK? Well, uh, full disclosure, I have two outstanding parking tickets right now. (laughs) Swarm! You should have had the app. (laughs) If you would have had the app, it would have warned you that you're running out of time. Well, but no, Greg, here's the thing. I do wish I had the app. The reason I got those tickets the parking meter wasn't working. And I actually took pictures of the meter because I kept putting in tunies and it just kept flashing zero. So if they can come up with a way where that doesn't happen anymore and I run out of change, yeah, I'm all, I'm all for it. Part of the problem here is for as popular as the app is, the statistics uh, say that only 17% of people use it right now. I use it. I think it's outstanding. And it's new, though, so that that number will skyrocket in the next few years, especially if they take away the meters. But how friendly is this to everyone, Shanley, in your opinion? Well, like like you said, I just got back from a trip, and and so I'm thinking a lot about tourist tourists and how tourist friendly our city is. And when I am hearing this, I'm I'm thinking, oh my god, what about people coming from other countries? Um, I know when I was in England, I my using my phone was a big issue because I didn't want to pay the ten dollars a day to access my data plan, and then my phone was not in good shape, so it was it's always dying. So I didn't always have access. And for example, I went out for dinner with some people. They all ordered their food using an app because that's what the locals do at this restaurant. I had no idea. I would have starved if I hadn't figured out I actually had to go downstairs to the bar and get my food. So I, I think I think it's, it makes it very uh, unwelcoming to have something like that where you have to uh, find it on your phone and and pay like that because... You need to have clear instructions for people, especially for people coming out of town. And Kelly, like, does this work on your flip phone? Like, well, uh, how, how are a, you going to pay? I only have a dumb phone, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle that. But you know what? If I'm a tourist or if a tourist is coming to Winnipeg, like if you're from uh, Colorado Springs, okay, and you get a parking ticket in Winnipeg, are you really going to pay that ticket? No, you're not. So what does it, to me, it doesn't make a difference for tourists. If, if they get a parking ticket in Winnipeg, it's not like they're worried about getting their car towed away. I would away. pay it. 
Yeah. If, if, if I was a tourist and I got a ticket, I would pay it. Uh, well, then you know what? And I would your say you're in the distinct minority on, on, on that one because yeah. I would I would hazard a guess that, uh, that a very low percentage of tourists would pay their parking tickets. So this is not a reason to keep the meters around? Well, you, we were talking about it from a tourist perspective. Yes. But yeah. No, I don't think so. I, I think that, uh, you know, if that's the technology that we're moving into where you pay on your phone, I pay with my credit card all the time. So, uh, it, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever method they choose, either get on the bus or get run over by it. One of the two. <laughs> wow. Very progressive thinking, Kelly Moore. Jerry? Well, I, I think that getting rid of all of the uh, parking meters all at once would be a a mistake uh, because you do have to uh, condition people towards uh, using the app and using their phone to do all the paying. Uh, but if if they were to say, you know what, these 144, they're going, then yeah, get get rid of them, but maybe replace them with 10 so that maybe you have to walk a block if you want to use a, a pay machine, but you can still find one that you can use if you don't want to pay on your phone. I think that's a decent compromise. Jeff Braun? Well, yeah, to get rid of the 144, and there's still 400 and some left. So this is only a drop in the bucket, the ones they're going to get rid of anyways. There'll be plenty left over, and they'll be there for years. And 10 years from now, there are people that won't have a smartphone. will be will be beyond smartphones in 10 years anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like we, if we, we always complain about how we're so far behind on everything, and then the minute they want to show any sign of progress, all we do is bitch and moan that, oh, my God, but uh, I don't have a, uh, my grandma doesn't have a cell phone. Well, she doesn't park downtown either, right? So who cares? Get on with it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I would rather, I find it easier to just pull out a couple of bucks and pay. If I go downtown, I always make sure that I have a couple of dollars on me. And uh, to me, that's easier than just having a deal with my phone, especially in the cold. Like, what if, for example, it's it's a cold winter day, you pull your phone out and it dies? Because that happens to me. I pull my phone's in my pocket, pull it out for 10 seconds, and it freezes and dies. But that can happen as easily as pulling out the change in your pocket, dropping it down a storm grade, and then, oh my God, I lost my change. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it could like but a little more minor things change. like that. Like, what if you have $6? You're going to drop all $6 in the, down the drain? Give a guy walking by 10 bucks to go on his phone and pay your parking for him. <laughs> and once you're signed up on the app or in the system, it's very quick. It takes less time to use the phone than it does to do punching your license plate to the machine and all that rigmarole. Yeah, but uh, but it, it's still, in theory, though, if the, the phone can still freeze and it will, it, like, it, I, I was out for a walk yesterday and it froze, I had it in my hand for five seconds and it died. So the, what I'm saying is if I'm downtown and I'm relying on this technology and I don't, I'd, I'd rather have the option to be able to use the app or pay with my change. I don't see the problem with at least providing the option. Maybe it's time Rabbit for a new phone. Threat. Says Kelly Moore, the man who is older than all of us combined. Kathy, <laughs> <laughs> no. what, what are you trying to say well, here? Well, I was just going to say, I'm going to pick up on Bronner's point and say that in 10 years, it's going to be a moot point anyways. We're, we're all going to be taking our jetpacks downtown. Sure. We don't need parking. We'll be able to pay telepathically, right? We'll just go, exactly. please send... $10 to the city of Winnipeg for six minutes of parking, because that's what will be in about 10 years' time. Well, I don't know, in 10 years' time, will we even be leaving our houses with the way everything is done where you have it delivered to your house? You'd never even have to leave. You'd go anywhere, get this delivered, get that delivered. So, well, Yes, now, the, another point here, we're getting lots of text message on this. Isn't that Apple needs both a credit card? There are people who choose 
not to have credit cards. Mm -hmm. These weirdos that don't have credit cards, uh, like, are they oh. parking downtown? Why do we care about these people? There if are... you choose not to be a part of society, why does society have to make exceptions well, to rules for you? What about Says people Global News anchor Jeff Braun. What about people between the ages of 16 and 18 who can't get a credit card yet? No. Jeff? Use their dad's credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, what's, what's our parking code, Dad? Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I have to say, I have the app on my phone, and I've had it for about a year and a half. My buddy Chuck LaFleche says it's changed his life because when you're in sales and when you have meetings downtown, you're forever trying to guess how long I'm going to be in. You always right. pay maximum. Yeah. And what's nice is you can add a little bit of time. It will warn you. Uh, it really eliminates really any possibility of you getting a parking ticket, it is super convenient. But I'm seeing the other side that uh, we're not quite there yet in terms yeah. of being able to eliminate all these meters. And, and I and I agree with Jeff that sometimes we are drag kicking and screaming into the 20th century, as Richard Cluche says, here in Winnipeg. But uh, at least they're thinking forward. But uh, it'll yeah, be interesting I, to see how it all plays out. Yeah, I don't sure. think you can go uh, on, a, on a thing like this cold turkey. It does have to be grandfathered in. Uh, but the thing I've always found, when you grandfather things in, it just gives the procrastinators more time to procrastinate. <laughs> yeah, we have a text here from somebody who says, My 85-year-old father does drive downtown and park downtown for doctor's appointments, and he does not have a phone. I would worry about him having to walk quite a distance in order to find a parking meter that takes money. The uh, So with the current system with the app, can you use it for any parking meter downtown? Just the city ones. Are, were you asking? Yeah, like, like any private, city. Uh, like, yeah, like any city street. meter. So there's a big uh, sticker on it, and it tells you where you're, what location you're at, and you just type in that four-digit code, and then you... Tell it how much parking you'd like to buy. You tap it. It's much like Uber in that sense. So you don't have to have the cash. It goes through on your credit card. They have a picture of your car. You enter your license plate number. You can add another car. You can add more cars onto your account. And to Brett's concern that uh, if it's cold outside, you just got to memorize the four-digit code, the 4762 or whatever it is. Go inside a building, take out your phone, and then do it from in there. Unless the parking unless the guy is, is waiting unless right, the guy is there, right there. Oh, and that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> isn't it? And for the weirdos who don't want to be a part of society, then don't park downtown. <laughs> KK, thank you very much. And Lee Vidal, thank you. Jeff Braun and Kelly Moore, of course, behind the glass, Jerry, as well. An offhand remark during Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's town hall tour has drawn international ire from the conservative media. Fox and Friends is among the outlets seizing on video footage of Trudeau interrupting a woman who used the term mankind during her question. The remark came last Thursday during Prime Minister Trudeau's town hall in Edmonton when a Canadian asked him to look into conservative religious policies. We came here today to ask you to also look into the policies that religious charitable organizations have in our legislation so that it can also be changed because maternal love is the love that's going to change the future of mankind. So we'd like you to look uh, we, we like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind, because uh, yeah. it's more inclusive. There we go, exactly. <laughs> yes, thank you. We can all learn from each other. <laughs> 
So while a spokesperson from the Prime Minister's office did not have comment on the reaction to the word, the official said Trudeau is a proud feminist. Quote, the Prime Minister is a proud feminist and our government's policies reflect our commitments to equality, says Chantal Gagnon in an email. What's your take on this? Well, you know what? I like. I played the clip earlier this morning. We were talking about cattle yesterday and cows and, the, and uh, what might happen to cattle production in Manitoba and in Canada in the case that NAFTA gets torn up. And I use the terminology cattleman. Very common phrase. And then I caught myself. I said, oh, cattle person, cattle people. I, I think we're hypersensitive to this. And of course, my tongue was firmly in my cheek, but I was genuinely bothered by the fact that Maybe I was caught in the middle of saying something that I might be judged for otherwise. But I think when we take it to the other extreme, you run the risk of being judged, judged harshly. And I think Trudeau's being judged harshly on this as well. And I think with good reason. You can't eliminate the word man and any word that has M-A-N in sequence in it and suggest that it's suddenly politically incorrect to use that word. Well, and overnight... Drex, the shift with Drex, had a rather interesting take on this. Uh, you can hear his full segment. At, I heard it at four around 4.52 this morning. Uh, he did a full, long uh, segment on it. But uh, So you can go to cjob.com and listen to the audio vault. But here's a 90-second chunk of what he had to say. Here's my take on it. Uh, one, she was waffling for way too long. Like, the, if you listen to the full audio, she was talking for four or five minutes. Like, just get your question out. Why are you chewing up other people's time? The whole point of those town halls is so people can get in front of Trudeau and, and, and pressure him with some questions. Like what we saw from that amazing veteran in Edmonton. Right? That's what I want to hear. This other woman was just, oh, is it, like, can you shut up now? Either ask the question or move on. It's very simple. But then on top of that, it was very rude of him to interrupt her. Don't interrupt somebody. Look, I, I'm guilty of it all the time. I interrupt people all the time. But I do it for comedic effect and it pisses people off. And I think it's hilarious. Right? But he's the prime minister of our country. His job is to sit there and listen to what people say and then give them an answer. And usually most of the answers he's been giving on these town halls are, uh, 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 and then no answer. But to interject and say, oh, we prefer people kind. You don't speak for me. You don't speak for me by saying it needs to be people kind. It is mankind or humankind. And they're interchangeable. It just means the human race. Us, little tiny, tiny people walking around on a very large earth. We're humans and we're men. We're mankind. We're humankind. People kind is not a word. Don't try and make it one. But here's the thing now, is because everyone's made such a big bloody deal about it, you watch Merriam-Webster Dictionary, we'll put it in as a word next year. Bootylicious is in there. Which word do you think is next? What's next on the uh, the endangered species list as far as words, including the, the word man? Well, we've had a conversation on text this morning about the Manitoba Museum was once upon a time, the Museum of Man and Nature. That's been changed. So is Manitoba next? Are we destined to become people Toba? Yeah. I don't know. We're getting a lot of text messages. We've had at least two come in in the last 30 seconds uh, from Wraith, who said people Atobia. And then another person here, uh, anonymous, says uh, people Atobia. William says, I don't like the phrase manslaughter. No one's in a rush to change that one. That's interesting. Here's what Lisa Raitt, member of parliament representing Milton, Ontario, had to say in the House of Commons in reaction to this. Member for Milton, order. 
Mr. Speaker, there's still an obligation under the Code of Conduct to make reports available to the public. The Prime Minister didn't do it either. The motion this morning is clear. We're asking for some holes to be plugged so that we don't have this possibility where the Prime Minister decides that he doesn't have to pay for his consequences. And that's just simply wrong. So, Mr. Speaker, I have a simple question. Will the Prime Minister person up and do the right thing and pay these Person up. Person up. And you know, Manitoba isn't even an English word, really. Yeah. It's a Cree word, right? So uh, I don't like the chances of Manitoba becoming people-toba. I'd hate for it to become a topic of conversation, but I think we could uh, play it up without any question and maybe get a little bit of uh, a little bit of tourism action out of this and, and maybe a little bit of attention for wondering if that's what we ought to do. I'm Brett, he's Greg, and I'm here to do a public service and issue a warning. If you saw the commercial during the Super Bowl and have been meaning to watch it, I'm here to tell you, don't watch the Cloverfield Paradox on Netflix if you haven't already done it. Here's the spot, the 30-second spot that ran during the first half. Possible earthquake near the Statue of Liberty. Looks like you should have left town a little bit earlier. Stop. Yeah, whatever you're doing, if you plan to watch the Cloverfield Paradox, stop. The text in the ad reads, 10 years ago, something arrived. Now, find out why. Greg, I know that you were flipping back and forth between the Super Bowl and the Scotty's Tournament of Hearts final in which Jennifer Jones, Manitoba's Jennifer Jones, beat Winnipeg's Carrie Anderson in the wild card. Did you see this commercial? I confess I do not know anything about any of this, so thank you. Okay. Well, the backstory for those who don't know. In January 2008, a film debuted called Cloverfield. It was one of those found footage movies. Uh, where some you typically it's something in the horror genre, but this was a monster movie, a science fiction monster movie, found footage where this big monster invades Manhattan, and it's really cool and it's scary and I love it. And there was talk of a sequel for years. In 2016, we finally got sort of a follow-up, a film called Ten Cloverfield Lane, which actually was not a sequel, but it was described as a blood relative. Whatever, however you want to describe that, it too was sensational. So in the meantime, there's been a movie in development since 2012 called The God Particle, which was also reportedly a part of this Cloverfield family, which essentially what it boils down to is, uh, we don't think this movie's good enough to get any traction on its own, so let's make it Cloverfield related. But nothing happened for years. But then fast forward to Super Bowl Sunday 2018, up pops this commercial, which immediately grabs my attention because I'm such a big fan of that first Cloverfield movie. It had footage from that first movie, and I think to myself, is this the long-awaited threequel? Sure enough, it is, and it also turns out it's going to be on Netflix, which was a surprise. I thought this was going to be a theatrical thing, and it's going to be on after the game. So, like, this is the first footage, first time you're seeing any sort of hint of what this movie is about. First trailer, first drop, and oh, by the way, you can watch it in two hours. Yeah. 
never, I've never, like we've heard of surprise albums being dropped. I think Beyonce is probably the most notable example where it just, boom, Beyonce's got a new record and it's out now. Uh, but I've never seen a movie appear out of the ether like this. So of course I'm excited to watch it. I waited, mind you, because after the game I had to watch This Is Us and have myself an ugly cry. Man cry. 27 million viewers, by the way, for This Is Us on Sunday night. So I watched The Cloverfield Paradox Monday afternoon. And Greg, disappointment does not begin to describe Oh, now how that I feel. sucks. I feel bad for you. I really do. Well, I mean, look, it had some thrills. It had some good acting. Uh, one of, Jerry, who's the guy that you like in the movie? Chris O'Dowd. Thank you. And he had some great uh, witty dialogue. It had some nice visual effects. But it's all often confusing and even downright stupid. Feels like a cheap knockoff of a film called Event Horizon, which you probably don't know, Greg. Jerry, I would imagine, knows. I saw it in the theater twice. Oh, I only saw it once. It's a space horror movie from the 1990s. So, yeah, uh, if this were just simply a movie called The God Particle and had nothing to do with Cloverfield, I'd say mildly entertaining but instantly forgettable. But because they made it this Cloverfield thing and uh, they made this big deal out of uh, the marketing, I, I'm really angry. I'm getting angrier the more I think about this. Good for Paramount because they realized they had this stinker. They created a dud. And they foisted it upon Netflix. But as it turns <laughs> out, they're going to make it profitable because of that. Netflix wins as well because Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are going to watch this. Oh, and then there, there's going to be another one set in World War II called Overlord, or I suppose they're going to call it Cloverlord. Whatever. Uh, I'll give my full review of the Cloverfield Paradox on the Couch Potatoes, which is on at noon on Saturdays, 6 p.m. Sundays, or on podcast and iTunes on Google Play. That, that felt surprisingly and a lot like an ad for the Couch Potatoes. Is this? Is there some symmetry here? Are you? Is there a paradox or a parallel between this whole Cloverdale thing and now you're dropping a new episode of the Couch Potatoes this weekend? Although you do it every weekend, so yeah, I guess be, it's Greg. not. Yeah, that, might be a method to the madness. Very clever. Not as clever as renaming Manitoba Peopletoba for, I don't know, half a day or a week or something like that, just to catch everyone's attention. Would that be like a middle finger to the Prime Minister? To, yeah, I think so. Would it be? <laughs> Probably. Should we do it? It might. I think we should. <laughs> The conversation continues about an invasive wood-boring insect that attacks and kills all species of ash trees, which is now in Winnipeg. So far, the emerald ash borer has been found on two city streets in St. Boniface and in Happy Land Park. The city is expected to spend more than $100 million over the next 10 years to fight the impact of the emerald ash borer. So to tell us more about the emerald ash borer and if it can harm you, humans, we are joined by Jordan Bannerman, entomologist at the University of Manitoba. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. Yeah, thanks. Um, happy to uh, talk about the emerald ash borer. Now, Brett, I think you might be the only person that I know that has potentially had a physical interaction with one of these insects. You want to tell the story? Well, the, the quick story is I was golfing in Pinawa, and uh, we could hear these bugs in the trees, and I didn't know what it was. And and, I, and a friend of mine who has a, a cabin in northwest Ontario says, oh, those, I think, I don't know if he said emerald ash borer, but he said that's a borer beetle. And then one of them landed on me quite large. I want to say this was, it was bigger than a toonie. It, it was on my leg and I said, oh, what's that? And he said, that's one of those borer bugs. And I said, do they bite? 
And he says, well, you wouldn't want it to because they can bite through a tree. <laughs> so, of course, I, I shook it loose and ran away like a little boy. Um, but uh, these bugs, they can bite through trees. Do they bite people? Well, so the insect um, in that, that you're talking about is probably a, a different species. It's uh, what we call the uh, white pine sawyer beetle. Um, so your friend was partially correct um, in that uh, they do feed on um, trees and, and chew through them. Um, and uh, those are a species of longhorn beetle. Um, they do have very, very well-developed jaws, and they can actually inflict a pretty painful bite. Um, the species of beetle, the emerald ash borer, that uh, Winnipeg is now going to be dealing with for the foreseeable future um, is actually much, much smaller. Um, uh, they only get up to uh, between about three quarters of a centimeter and, and a centimeter and a half. Um, and while they're going to cause you know, major issues to the trees in the city, um, they're not really a concern for uh, kind of their interactions with us. Jordan, what other cities have felt the ravage of this beetle? And is Winnipeg fighting a losing battle? I mean, I know I'm kind of cutting to the chase here, but can we defeat this beetle or has it already won in a sense? Um, <laughs> it's unfortunately kind of a, uh, you know, not a, not a great situation. Um, we're looking at, you know, within probably between the next 10 and 20 years for, you know, add up to 99.9% mortality in, in the ash trees. Um, they're really at this point in time is, is not, once, once the beetle becomes established in an area, um, it, there's really no way to adequately control it. Um, this is something that uh, this species was, was accidentally introduced from uh, Asia originally, um, into, I think the first area it was detected in Canada was in Windsor, Ontario, uh, southern Ontario. Um, and it's essentially progressively spread through Ontario, Quebec, um, probably 20 states by now, um, basically doing the same thing everywhere. Uh, and that is just progressively um, killing all of the ash trees. So how fast do these things multiply? Um one of the one of the questions um, that is currently being worked on by uh, both the city and uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is whether this beetle in Manitoba, because um, this is basically the furthest north and west that the beetle has been found in in North America. Um, we're not totally sure if it's going to have a one year life cycle, so it's if it's going to complete one full generation per year. Um, or a two-year life cycle, so one generation per two years. Um, and until we know that, uh, we don't really have a good sense of, of uh, how fast it's going to spread you know, across Winnipeg itself as a, as a large municipality and to other parts of the province. Jordan Bannerman is an entomologist at the University of Manitoba. He joins us now. We're talking about the emerald ash borer beetle. How is it that we cannot figure out a way to interrupt this beetle's life cycle and eradicate it? But what is it in its DNA or in its very being that, that we simply uh, can't figure out how to get rid of it? Well, there's there's a number of kind of tricky elements to this to this beetle. Uh, one of the most challenging elements is that it is very hard to detect um, when it's only present in low levels or low numbers. 
um, because the the damage that they cause is under the bark and is is not really visible. Um, so you can have beetles, you know, in an area uh, for years before they even get detected. Um, and you know, as soon as there's a reasonable number, um, they just start to exponentially grow, and and it's very difficult to control. Um, the 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 issue often or the the primary issue is is the the fact that we as humans are are probably the the major source of spreading this beetle through infected wood and and uh, our own movements. So as it kind of progressively spreads in, into an area, there's there's not really any what we would call natural controls. So any um, uh, other insects that control it, or birds, for example, their woodpeckers will eat them. There, there are some uh, parasitic insects, um, but none so far in North America that have been, uh, you know, up to the task of actually stopping and, and getting rid of this beetle. Now, Jordan, the the bug that you referred to earlier, and you're right. He now that you you mentioned the name, I, the word pine does because I couldn't remember exactly what my friend uh, called this bug. But did you mm-hmm. call it a white pine slayer beetle? Uh, uh, close. So- Sawyer beetle. Um, oh, Sawyer beetle. Okay, that yeah, would have been way cooler if it was a Slayer beetle. <laughs> different, yeah, what, di- different, different band. <laughs> Sawyer <laughs> is, I think, a country band. Sawyer Brown versus Slayer. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, that's that's too bad. It's not hard rock and roll enough. Hey, uh, we appreciate the access, Jordan. Will you uh, join us again? We we really appreciate uh, your insight on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I think the people in Winnipeg are only going to hear more and more about. Um, So uh, I'm sure there will be more questions in the future. Jordan Batterman, he's an entomologist at the University of Manitoba. We appreciate his time. The emerald ash borer, Brett, has the potential to dramatically change Winnipeg's skyline over the next decade or so. City Winnipeg is looking to replace the 100-year-old rusting hulk that is... The Arlington Bridge. The new bridge will have a number of major improvements, including better traffic flow, easier walking and cycling, and may even feature a giant arch. To discuss the future of the Arlington Bridge, and if we should just move the rail yards instead, we are joined by Brent Bellamy, chairman of Centre Ventures Board and the creative director at Number 10 Architectural Group. And Brent, always great to catch up with you. You, you tweeted out yesterday a, a concept, a, a model of what this bridge could look like, but it, it had me thinking, and I think I even responded to your picture saying, I would like to think that maybe we don't need to build this bridge in the first place. Yeah, uh, good morning. Um, I totally agree with you when you when tweeted that yesterday. I was smiling because I knew what you were thinking. Um, the time to remove the rail yards is not today. It was 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, you You were just talking about... Uh, the trees, the ash trees in the city. You know the old saying, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. The best time to move the rail lines was 40 years ago. The last time we studied it, we haven't studied it since 1970. And the cost to move the rail lines at that time was $75 million. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see now we're proposing a $300 million bridge and two, actually two other pieces to that, which will probably bring it over a billion dollars. They're proposing a tunnel underneath um, underneath the line and then expanding the, the, the existing underpass. So in, in total, we're looking at probably a billion dollars just for this one intervention, just this one time getting across. So 
you know, I completely agree with you. It's time to, to look at other ways. And it's not just it's not just the rail yards themselves. It's the main lines that cross crisscross the city. We're building a $150 million underpass at Waverly. There's a proposal for a $200 million underpass at Marion. Um, we're spending something close to $100 million at Jubilee for the bus rapid transit. The bus rapid transit actually crosses again at Chevrolet. So there's another overpass there. Um, it, it's just a reality in our city, and it, it really is time to step back and have a bigger picture view of it, like at least study it so we can have uh, a realistic discussion about what the costs are. Is there any idea as to what it would cost to, to move the lines out? You know, there, the, the closest thing I could, ever, I could find was a study done in Denver about 10 years ago. They have actually rail lines, two rail yards and two main lines crossing the city, which is exactly the same situation that we have, and almost the exact same area of, of rail yard. They did a study to, to see what it would cost to move the lines, uh, to move actually everything away from the city. And this was 10 years ago, bear in mind, but it came in at, where there were two independent sources that pegged the cost at $1.2 billion. So that was 10 years ago. So even if we say they were wrong by 100% mm-hmm. and say that it cost $2 billion, um, you can start to, once you start adding up all the things that we're doing to crisscross, the, or crisscross these lines, you can see that it, it gets to be a realistic discussion. And I just really think we need to start, at least study it to see what the reality is. In that study, they actually found, though, that even though it did cost $1.2 billion, they found that it would create $5 billion in economic activity. There was $2 billion just in jobs to, to build the, the new rail yards and lines in, a, in other areas of their state. Um, you know, the taxes, the, the neighborhoods that would go in where the rail yards are pay much higher taxes than what the rail lines do. They don't pay very much tax. In fact, for the first hundred years, they paid no tax here in Winnipeg. Right. So, well, a so, lot of people will say, Brent, though, and I'm only jumping to this because we got about two minutes left here, yeah, if that, sure. is a lot of people will say, okay, let's pretend we, there was the political will and we could even find the money to justify doing this. What could you possibly do with that land? Is it suitable for redevelopment? Is it suitable for anything other than a giant park? It would be an amazing mixed-use neighborhood. Like, imagine, it's a huge divide in our city right now. It, it separates the north end from the rest of the city. Imagine weaving the north end back into the city, bringing, uh, creating jobs, making um, a, a real mixed-use neighborhood that, that pays really high taxes and is in a vibrant, a vibrant um, contributor to the city. And, and replacing, you know, one of the big expenses of rapid transit is expropriation of land. Imagine having all those rail corridors suddenly accessible for rapid transit or active transportation. You know, it really could change the, the face of the city. And even they've, they've created new um, guidelines now that are coming out that makes development near rail lines much more difficult because of the Lac Megantique uh, disaster a few years ago. They're reacting to that by making it more difficult to develop near rail lines. So it's really creating this sort of buffer all the way across the city that's it's a loss of, of infill development uh, opportunity in the city. I think people would say that land would be contaminated. Can we answer that in 20 seconds? For sure. They, uh, you, can, you can always decontaminate land. It's, it was part of the $1.2 billion cost in Denver. It's not, it's not an impossible thing to do.
All right, Brent Bellamy, thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Brent Bellamy is chairman of Center Ventures Board and the creative director at Number 10 Architectural Group. One, two, three. Time for three things once again with Shanalee Vidal. And today it's three well-known Manitoba exports. Good morning, Shanley. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Shanley. Welcome back. Great to have you back. The headline is this. Alberta says if BC won't stop restriction of bitumen from the oil sands, it will no longer import BC wine? Yeah. And so what's going to happen next is... Uh, is BC going to say that they're not going to accept Alberta beef? Oh, and, my. And so that, you know, that really got us to talking this morning about, well, some of our best-known exports right here in Manitoba. And actually, you start thinking about them, and we have so many. So that's, that's why I decided to do my three things about that. And it was really difficult because we actually have so many great things here in Manitoba that are loved uh, by people around the world. But uh, so the first one I'm going to uh, uh, talk about is something that I was thinking about a lot lately because when I was in England, I was in London and then in Manchester, and especially Manchester, um, I had to take the bus every day to get to where I was going because okay. it was quite a ways from my hotel to the uh, to the roller skating venue. Sure. And so I got to thinking about public transportation and a lot, and I was thinking about our public transportation as well because theirs is a little different. Like it is the double decker buses, but they didn't um, they don't announce the stops. And they don't have it. They don't say what stop is next, right? So you have no idea where you're going. Oh my! Right. So, uh, so I was appreciating our our uh, bus service a little, little bit more. And I think interesting. Um, yeah. So buses is number one on the list because we have, of course, New Flyer right here in Winnipeg in in Transcona. And they're like the largest transit bus and motor coach manufacturer and parts distributor in North America. And I believe they do have a small facility in Ontario where they do some assembly, but it's they're made here in, in Winnipeg. That's true. And they have uh, assembly planned in Crookston, Minnesota mm-hmm. and down in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota in Alabama. But they've become a, an international, a North American player. And uh, that's like uh, 45% of all transit buses on the road yeah. right now were built by New Flyer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the company actively supports over 44,000 heavy-duty transit buses currently in service, and uh, 6,400 are powered by electric and battery propulsion. Wow. Yeah, pretty impressive. They're industry uh, innovators and leaders, that's for sure. Okay, so hopefully we don't pick a fight with Alberta, (laughs) and they say no more buses for Calgary and Alberta, and even Red Deer and Medicine Hat, I know, because I used to work with those communities when I worked with with, uh, New Flyer back in the day. And these are things that you couldn't possibly boycott because they're just too good and, and... and too necessary. Well, this next one is really good and, and maybe necessary for some <laughs> folks as well. I, well, I know what I'm thinking of Brett actually here. Uh, when I so when I went to England, I was uh, I was on a I was on a crew. I was a roller derby official, right? And everyone has you have a crew head, and so I brought a gift for my crew head. It was a, a small bottle of something that's made just north of the city in Gimli. Can you guess what that is? Crown oh, yeah. Royal. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my lips. <laughs> yeah, this is actually. Uh, I'm. A, this is a Greg thing. Yeah, Greg likes the Crown Royal. I have nothing against it. I'm just a, a rum guy, not a rye guy. But that's right. It's very good rye. It is, and it's, and it's very good. So people who know whiskey say that Crown Royal is really something special. It's aged in these like white oak barrels and has this really distinctive flavor. And it's actually the number one selling whiskey in the United States. Canadian whiskey. 
Yeah. Or number one selling whiskey, Number period. one selling whiskey. And there's actually, Crown Royal actually makes this a whiskey called the Special Edition Crown Royal. And you can only get it here in Canada. You can't get it in the States. And it's, um, it's, it's made in much smaller batches. And the reason why they make it in smaller batches is because they can't, if they made it in big batches, then the quality would decrease. So until they're, they're able to have that quality maintained, then they will continue to make it in the small batches. I think you know a little bit more about Crown Royal than you're letting <laughs> on here. So maybe we need to talk about that after the show today. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> What's the third thing on your list, Shanley? Now, the third thing, though, this isn't so much an export, but something you have to come to Manitoba to see. Fair enough. Polar bears. Sure. Yeah. So, of course, Churchill is known as the polar bear capital of the world. It's true. Polar bears walking down the streets. Yeah, you betcha. And right here in Winnipeg, we have the polar bear enclosure at the Assiniboine Park Zoo. Journey to Churchill. Journey to Churchill. You don't actually have to go there. Nope. I think people would like you to go all the way to Churchill, but you don't need to. You, and it's spectacular if you've never been. It is. I've, I've gone many, many times. And uh, we have actually two new orphaned uh, bear cubs there that ca- are calling the zoo their home. And they recently got their names... Uh, Willow and Baffin. Oh, I didn't realize the contest was over. Yeah, the contest is over because people could vote on which name they, they like best. So Willow and Baffin, they're joining eight other polar bears at the at the zoo. Right on. Well, don't mess around with our polar don't, bears. Don't mess with Winnipeg. You don't mess with it. Manitoba. Thank you very much, Shanalee. Shanalee Vidal, three things with Shanalee heard every day after the 8 o'clock news here on 680 CJOB. symbols. I hear them playing in the background. I associate that exclusively with belly dancing. Kevla is here. She's co-producer of Shivers and Shimmies. It's a showcase taking place this Saturday at the Winnipeg Contemporary Dancers Studio at 211 Bannatine. It's actually the Rachel Brown Theatre. And Kevla, welcome to Mackling McGarry in the morning. We appreciate you taking some time. Is this typically an early start for you or does this work into your normal routine? Okay. It's a little early for me, but uh, that's not a problem. Uh, Kind of a flexible schedule as far as uh, dancers go. And now I'm sure you're not necessarily used to working with a microphone. We'd love for you to get a little bit closer so that we can hear you tell us all about this event that's taking place on Saturday. And we want to learn a little bit more about belly dancing overall. What is this event? The event is Shivers and Shimmies. It is the only all-professional belly dance show in Winnipeg for this year. So you have been a belly dancer for how long? I have been belly dancing for several years at this point. Um, everybody in the show has. And it's mostly local dancers, but we do have a few coming in from out of town. We have somebody who we brought in from Edmonton as our headliner. Her name is Anya, and she is fantastic. We've also got somebody coming up from Georgia to be in the show. And we have somebody who uh, actually lives up in Nunavut, and she is in for the weekend My as well. My goodness. And what, uh, I understand that there are different styles, which I didn't know, so uh, Egyptian, Bollywood, modern, theatrical, which discipline would be yours? I am somewhere between American cabaret and Egyptian. I borrow from both styles. Oh, really? So Mm -hmm. you have like a a hybrid that you've created? Uh, It's not so much created as I've mostly studied those styles. Um, I have mostly studied Egyptian style, but I have a Western dance background, a lot of ballet, a lot of jazz, a lot of contemporary, and that's going to come out uh, Americanizing the Egyptian style. 
So what is it about belly dancing that attracted you to it in the first place? Um, I love dance. I've always danced um, from a very young age. Uh, my mom likes to tell me that uh, I was basically begging her for dance classes from about the time I could walk. But belly dance in particular, it is a lot easier on the body. It has a much, belly dancers have a much more um, long life as dancers uh, that compared to other dance forms. You know, a lot of ballet dancers are retired at 30, for example, whereas belly dancers, you'll find women in their 70s still dancing. And uh, as far as you mentioned that you wanted, you were begging for dance classes. I see that part of this uh, Shivers and Shimmies is that you're offering uh, dance workshops. Yes, we've got workshops on the Saturday and the Sunday, both days. There are six workshops with four instructors, all of them experienced instructors and fantastic dancers. So is there a story in every dance or what's the, what's the attraction and what's the, what's the role of the audience in terms of, uh, is there some interaction? Is there interplay there? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's very encouraged for the audience to be uh, a part of it. It's, um, it's all about energy, right? Um, so if the dancers are doing something that you enjoy, absolutely cheer for them, clap for them in the middle of a piece, absolutely do it. What, how does uh, belly dancing uh, add up in terms of, uh, I suppose, the the fitness benefits? Like, is it, uh, I guess, in terms of the, the level of exercise, how high impact a workout is it? Uh, well, that's going to depend on what type of belly dance you're doing. Um, if you're doing, you know, shimmy drills for, you know, half an hour, you're going to burn a lot more calories than if you're doing something more uh, slow and slinky, right? But... Um, it's definitely a really good core exercise. Um, you get develop abs without ever having to uh, do crunches on the floor. <laughs> now that sounds appetizing to a, a lot of folks. Uh, I know that my mom used to do this once upon a time. It was a, a way for her to get active, and yep. it was very popular in the in the seventies and the eighties. Is it is it gaining a, a renewed popularity? It certainly cycles. Yeah. Um, I know that, um, you know, about every every 10 years it starts to peak up again and then comes back down. And, and yeah, you're right. It is, it's a fantastic way of getting, getting active, especially with um, people who, you know, you don't necessarily want to start at degree 100, right? You want to, you want to build your way up there and it's very body, body friendly. Just about anybody can get started and see where it goes. Will tickets be available at the door, or do you have to buy the tickets ahead of time? Tickets are, you can get them both at the door and in advance. Tickets are $15 in advance, and they raise to 20 at the door, so... Okay, well, it's the third annual Shivers and Shimmies Showcase this Saturday, Winnipeg Contemporary Dancers Studio, uh, the Rachel Brown Theatre in the Contemporary Dancers Studio at 211 Bannatyne. The event will feature a huge variety of performances from Egyptian cultural dances to Bollywood to modern theatrical. Our guest is Kevla, who is the co-producer of Shim Shivers and Shimmies. And what is your website, Kevla? It's actually just kevlabellydance.com. And that's spelled K-E-V-L-A. Kevla, thank you so much for joining us to tell us about this. Thank you for having me. Stand in the place where you live. 
As always, there is a method to the madness of Behind the Glass Jerry's musical selections. Standing instead of sitting could help you lose weight, but there's a catch. Greg Mackling actually right now is standing in our studio. Uh, I sat down because I find it awkward to stand here, which is so... Oh, I wish say I it, lamented. Say it, say it out I, loud. I want... Express yourself. I wish that we could stand up in here all the time and it not be awkward. There are two other radio stations uh, housed uh, here at Chorus Radio Winnipeg. Our friends at uh, 99.1, Peggy, and also at Power 97. They both have the option of standing. And here we are. We're here for four hours every morning in this studio and it would be delightful to have the option to stand, Catherine. And I was surprised, Brett, you told me that you actually had the option to stand in your workplace what, almost two decades ago. Yeah, I worked in a call center in uh, for an airline uh, back in uh, late 90s and early 2000s, and uh, each individual station, uh, so just not like they weren't cubicles, it was more just like a small desk. You could raise it up uh, or, you know, lower it back down so you could sit. So I would often stand up because I'd, sometimes I'd be falling asleep taking calls or just, you know, your legs get stiff, your legs get sore, especially in the winter, you know, where you might be a bit more sedentary. So it's nice to be able to stand up. And, uh, yeah, that was part of their, it was a unionized shop, so that was part of the Health and Safety Committee, made it mandatory. Just This is for the, the health, the benefit of your employees. So well, do it. Catherine McKenzie sitting here so patiently as we go back and forth. Catherine <laughs> McKenzie is our fitness expert. She's from Surefire Fitness. And, and Catherine, as we have this talk back and forth, I know you're impressed that Brett had this option so long ago. Yeah, for sure. Uh, tell us how long has it been, shall we call it fashionable for employee employers to give their employees the option of standing at the desk? Yeah, it's only been the last few years that the research is coming out on all the risks of sitting for so long. So employers are starting to make that plunge into giving uh, those options to people to stand or take more walk breaks. So definitely that uh, job that you had is a little bit ahead of its time. Yeah, it was wonderful. I, and I just, uh, I wish that we had this. I mean, I think that we might one day have that in this studio. That's kind of part of the long-term plan where they can raise the table and then give us those kind of pub-style chairs where you're sitting on a tall chair where you can stand or yeah, sit. Yeah, or you can move a little bit more throughout. But even if you don't have access to one of those convertible desks, you can do things throughout your day to minimize the amount of sitting, especially for long periods of time. I know you guys took a walk break during the news, and that's a great way just to kind of uh, get your metabolism going, get your joints moving, and improve cognitive function. Because as you sit for longer and longer periods, and some people sit throughout their workday with maybe only getting up one or two times, uh, everything kind of slows down, both cognitively and physically. Well, we've heard this conversation, the insinuation at least, that sitting is the new smoking. Is there some research to back that up? There is lots of research coming out. Obviously, smoking isn't good for you either, and that comes with a whole different set of problems, but sitting does lead to a lot of joint and posture dysfunction that kind of shows itself over time. So you may not notice after a few days or a few years even of sitting, but after months and months, years and years in a long-term job where you are at a desk sitting for the majority of your day, combined with the fact that most people drive to work in a seated position position and sit at home in front of the television after dinner where they're sitting. So the whole day is sedentary and you can't really undo that postural, uh, that thing that's happening always forward and crunched just by going to the gym or going for a walk. So it's about encouraging that ongoing movement throughout your day. One thing I would point out as well to anybody who is maybe thinking of quitting smoking, uh, and I certainly don't want to make this sound like I'm advocating to smoke, uh -huh. <laughs> but I noticed when I made the transition from smoker to non-smoker, 
I felt like I felt better, obviously, because I wasn't smoking, but I felt kind of worse because being a smoker made me get up and run outside at least once an hour. So I was getting access to fresh air and often I was sprinting down the hall to get outside. Yeah. And then I make the transition to non-smoking and I'm just sitting at my desk for hours at a time. It's an interesting take, but there are other (laughs) things you can do. I would recommend going to get up and grab a drinking of water uh, every half hour or so or every hour if you you can't afford the every half hour. Uh, Some places will do walking meetings. So rather than meeting in a boardroom and sitting around a table, there's no reason why you can't get out and do a little bit of a walk, whether it's around the office, office if it's too cold out or outside, and then getting out at lunchtime or during your breaks. Even if you're a non-smoker, you can still go outside and enjoy some fresh air. And again, I'm not saying, like I said, I'm not advocating. I'm, I'm giving that as a heads up because it, that is something you might notice at first where you go, oh man, my legs are super stiff and uh, I haven't been outside since I got here. Yeah. This is something you probably won't think about at first because if you don't have that reason to go outside to smoke, you... It sometimes feels weird to just go outside. Yeah, a bit of a transition for sure. But you can give your other yourself other reasons to walk around. Yeah, you know what? I always say that smokers are a very dedicated bunch, right? Because you'll show up here and they'll be outside in every type of weather. And we should be more dedicated to even take that little walk and of go out and get some genuine fresh air yeah. uh, when you can every uh, couple of hours or so. I know a cardiac researcher that works at the Mayo Clinic down in Rochester, Minnesota, and she has one of those standing desks, but she also has a treadmill yeah. there and she refuses to answer or even look at email unless she is on that treadmill and at that desk. Yeah. Uh, that kind of sort of yin and yang thing is maybe something that we could uh, implement ourselves. Uh, maybe not to that extent, but have you got some tricks, some things that we can do, some payoff well, for, you, for moving? Yeah, what you can do is kind of create some habits. So every time there's a break, you get up and go get some water, walk around. Every time you need to answer the phone, maybe you could do that standing. Anytime you are doing emailing, maybe you spend five minutes standing. Any sort of task or chore that you can give yourself that you can do in a upright position, you can give yourself those cues. I'm here with Catherine McKenzie from Surefire Fitness. Mackling and McGarry in the morning on 680 CJOB. Don't you know I'm still standing than I, ever I don't know. Your musical knowledge is just way too good, Jerry. Behind the glass, Jerry. Is it Billy Joel? No, that's not Billy Joel. That's Elton John. Elton John. Elton John. They tour together. Can I be forgiven? No. No. <laughs> okay, then. Fine. <laughs> We're talking about standing instead of sitting at work. Uh, do you have that option? And if you have it, do you take advantage of it? And, and what are the genuine ben- benefits? Catherine McKenzie is here. She's with Surefire Fitness. She's our fitness expert. And the article that we were referencing kind of is misleading, I think, as we found as we searched through this article. But what is the headline? Standing instead of sitting could help you lose weight, but there's a catch. And I think the catch, Catherine, is that it's not a ton of weight. Like, don't don't use that as a strategy. Yeah. To, to trigger a massive weight loss. It's a starting point, and the article kind of cites that you'll be burning more calories if you stand compared yeah, to sitting. Yeah, if you stand for six hours compared <laughs> to sitting. But the idea there is that the more you're moving, the more you're going to burn. So other than worrying about the caloric deficit that you might be creating, it's more about uh, healthy joints and good posture. People who sit a lot ha- often have uh, low back issues, tight hamstrings, uh, glutes, or those muscles in your butt that don't function. 
function properly and very tight hips just because they're always in that crunched position, as well as some upper back issues with posture that's rounded forward on the shoulders or the head uh, chin pointed forward, which causes tension headaches, uh, tension in the neck, jaw pain, etc. So there are some ramifications to not sitting in a proper posture. And w- what percentage of us have good posture? It's oh got to be a goodness. very, very small number. <laughs> I think mo- almost all of us are guilty yeah, of, most of people. Uh, hunch, right? Just because of the way we live. Like I mentioned before, just from driving all day long, most of us have a job that's fairly sedentary or we're seated in the position for multiple t- hours during the day or sitting in front of the television, sitting watching your kids playing sports. Most of us are kind of in that crunched position for an extended period of, period of time over many years. So it's hard to undo that, but there are ways that you can work at it. And one of them is by standing and walking more throughout the day. Well, and as far as posture goes, I just remember I used to work uh, work out at this little gym next door to uh, where we, the radio station used to be at 930 Portage. It was called Core Fitness at the time. Uh, it's not there anymore. But uh, one of the trainers there, Darren, he would always tell me, you want to walk like a peacock. Yeah. Got to get your shoulders way out. And I always felt really stupid, but when I did it, I always felt way better. Yeah. And that's the thing is when I help people put their shoulders into proper posture, it feels awkward to them because that's not what they're used to. They're used to being so crunched or rounded forward. So. Ironically, though, when you do it, it is empowering. It's physically empowering. There's a TEDx talk that talks about physically being big when you're going into a meeting, when you're coming on the air, yeah. either in television and radio. There is something to that. The whole of idea of standing tall. Yes, there, that, that's not just something your mom or your grandma said to you. No. There's There are some legitimate benefits to it to you in terms of confidence and how you project yourself. For sure. And that's one of the things that I'll ask clients. Oftentimes they'll be focusing on weight loss or improved strength as one of the benefits of, you know, starting a workout. But sometimes I'll ask them, do you feel taller? And if they think about it, they do because they are walking a little bit taller or their posture has improved slightly. So... Catherine, uh, do you have a website? Surefirefitness.ca. And where is Surefire Fitness? We are everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you want them to be, right, Catherine? We train most of our clients in their homes or at their gym, so we're quite mobile. That's oh, really? A, that's yeah. a great way to be. And I want to give a shout out to Jeremy. He says, as a long haul trucker, the best thing is stopping once in a while to walk around your rig a few times. Fresh air. I mm, love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for uh, connecting with us, Jeremy. And thanks for what you do. And thank you, Catherine, for joining us once again. You here bet. On thanks 680 for having CGOB. me. We've been telling you about this for the last few weeks now. Winnipeg police warning you about a scam that has recently surfaced in Winnipeg. This is uh, about three weeks ago, I think, we first heard about virtual kidnapping, uh, where victims are being tricked into paying ransom to free a loved one whom they may believe is being threatened with violence or death. The threats are often made over the phone from an unfamiliar number. And now police have received at least four reports of these frauds. We just told you yesterday on Global News that police are again watching, warning people to watch out for a scam that's made its way to Winnipeg. Four reports in 2018 in our area. In two of the incidents, victims sent money. In fact, they did send money to an out-of-country area code. Well, there's someone who spotted this story. One of our friends we actually interviewed, I guess, early-ish last year on Macklin McGarry in the afternoon. An author by the name of K.J. Howe, who is actually an expert in kidnap and ransom techniques and research. She wrote a book last year called The Freedom Broker, which is super fun. I highly recommend it. It's a real thriller, and I'm hoping it comes to the big screen. Actually, you know what? Let's get her on the air here right now. And before we talk about it, it's the, the serious stuff, K.J. Howe, is The Freedom Broker going to be made into a film? 
Hey, great to join you guys again. I am sure hoping so. Um, I'm definitely working with a producer right now talking about this uh, opportunity. And uh, who would you love to see uh, play Thea? I have, I have a hard time with that. Because every time I, I have sort of a handful of, of actors from various TV shows, uh, for example, the woman who played Elektra in Daredevil on Netflix, I think she might be a good fit. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, though. And also, I was thinking, too, that Charlize Theron would be amazing. Oh, well, she and she proved uh, over the summer in Atomic Blonde that she is more than capable of kicking everyone's butt on screen. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about the book in a moment. But you saw this story, this virtual kidnapping stuff. It's relatively new to our community, but it's something that's been around for a while. So what do you, what do you know about virtual kidnapping, KJ? Yeah, it, it's really a form of extortion. And it's very cruel because basically what happens is... Uh, people will call and they'll, they're very innovative. That's the sad part. They'll have someone scream or a child call up mommy or daddy to really tug on the heartstrings of the person that they're, you know, the mark that they're trying to get. And um, sometimes they just like dial number after number looking for opportunities. Other times they're very, um, quite devious and they'll go on social media and basically research the person so that they know something about them. And you know that on Facebook, for example, there's this um, opportunity. You can say you're flying from here to there. You should really never do that because mm-hmm. that's a perfect time for these people to extort you. If your loved one is flying somewhere, they can call and, you know, you can't reach them because they're in flight. KJ, it's uh, Greg here. Uh, thanks yeah, for doing do, doing this with us. Uh, I can't wait to uh, read The Freedom Broker. It's sitting on my nightstand, so I apologize that I, that I haven't finished it yet. But I have, to, I have to tell you this. Uh, if ever there was a warning for people to be careful about what they share on social media, this story and these events that police are bringing to our attention uh, would definitely put that at the top of the list of things that I wouldn't want to do. Yeah, and it's it's really sad, too, because you can tell it's not a traditional kidnapping because when people call in typical kidnappers, they want to get off the phone as soon as possible to avoid a trace, right? But these people want to keep you on the phone as long as possible, throw you off balance, panic you, and get you to send the money as quickly as possible without thinking. So they basically press the panic button, and as soon as you hear a loved one, especially a child, has been kidnapped, you know, your brain doesn't think as well. You need to sort of take a deep breath and, and think things through clearly. So if you get a phone call like this, how are you supposed to stop and think about it for a moment and think, because if someone were to call me and say, uh, we have your your father, pay us now or suffer the consequences, the first thing going through my head is not, this is a scam. So how do I get to that point? Sure. It's a great question. And one of the things you can do is, first of all, ask for proof of life or, um, for example, what, what, what is my child wearing? What is my father wearing? Um, can I please speak to my father? Can you have my father call, call me from his cell phone? You know, things like that. Because they'll just try and pull a scam by having someone in the background. You can also prevent something like this by telling your loved ones a safe word. So all of you who know the safe word and then ask the, kid, the you know, fake kidnapper, what is the safe word from my loved one then if, you're, if you have them? So I think it's very difficult because they would often threaten bodily harm. They can have screaming in the background. And so definitely you've got to stay calm. Also, what you might want to do is immediately call 911 on another phone if you have your cell and they're calling on the landline 
and just say to them, this is, I'm, I'm, you know, put them on mute for a second and just say, I'm dealing with this call. I don't know if it's real. And quite often the police can go check, let's say, to make sure your father's, you know, where he's supposed to be. You know, when I think about this, and it really is psychological warfare to a certain extent, right, KJ, is they're trying to catch you off balance and to take advantage of of you in probably a situation where you've never been before as vulnerable as you've ever been. But I can't help but wonder if this scam is now coming to North America because it's been successful elsewhere. That's correct. Um, Los Angeles actually had a massive problem with it from Mexico. Mexico is one of the hotbeds of kidnapping these days. And so what happened was with all the drug cartels and everything, they were kidnapping tons of people, and they had express kidnappings as well as virtual. And express kidnappings are when basically you grab someone, you take them to an ATM at 11, like 55, you have them withdraw the full amount, and then at 12.02, they get to withdraw the full amount from the next day. And then they basically let you go having, you know, basically two days of full amounts. Um, but yeah, it's really become a serious problem in Los Angeles. One of the things, like you said earlier, look at the phone number. If it's from a very strange number out of country, um, or you can even Google quickly the area code to see if it's from Mexico. Now, no, it, go ahead. No, I was just wondering, is as far as kidnapping uh, abroad is concerned, if you're if you're just like a normal person who isn't rich, are you less likely to to fall victim to a crime like this? Like, is this something where rich people are being targeted, or does it matter? Okay, it used to be that wealthy people and um, executives that you know travel overseas for business were the main targets. This landscape has changed dramatically now, and basically it's anyone. I mean, missionaries, aid workers, journalists, you know, they're all targeted. Um, in many of these developing countries, they look at us and feel that we're very wealthy. And in comparison, we genuinely are, given they, you know, make only a few dollars a month in work. And it, it's a very tricky situation. You have to take very good care of yourself while you're traveling abroad. And awareness is the number one thing. You know, don't uh, text or talk on the phone when you're walking around a foreign town. You know, keep your head up, scan for trouble. Because bottom line is kidnapping is, a you know, an opportunity. Um, and they don't want to... Abduction is very challenging time. It's one of the most difficult times for kidnappers. So you don't want to make it easy on them. Travel in groups, you know, so you're not alone and look like you're aware and strong and, um, you know, in charge of everything you're doing. This makes the odd shakedown that you might have gotten in Puerto Vallarta or Cabo San Lucas uh, by the local police look like a walk in the park. (laughs) Well said. Exactly. Next time you're hassled by customs, you can rethink it, right? Yeah, no kidding. Wow. And where these virtual kidnappers, uh, KJ How? where do they sort of all kind of hang out in the same spot? Or are they, is this something where they, they're, they're kind of setting up shop uh, around the world? Uh, definitely around the world. And, I mean, certain, you know, hot zones. On my website, kjhow.com, I do have a map where kidnapping is more prevalent. And if you're going to plan your vacation, you might want to take a look at that before booking a trip. Uh, But at the same time, you know, it really is everywhere. And it's really invasive that they're coming into your homes, right, now with the virtual kidnapping. And they don't even have someone, but they're causing a lot of fear and you can imagine that, you know, there's a lot of innocent people that would fall, you know, victim to this scam. Well, and that's one of the things when I was reading the Freedom Broker that uh, that I enjoyed about it was, you know, the how much 
the research you put into it and how frighteningly realistic it was, I think that's why it played off as such a great thriller. Uh, it's just kind of breakneck Jason Bourne style thriller. Uh, but at the same time, it was it was very scary to know that this kind of stuff happens out there and that it's not just from the mind of an author. Yeah, well, one of my main um, goals is to make the world a slightly safer place by educating people through fiction and also doing I'm Brett, talks he's on Greg, travel behind the glass, Jerry, and because, Tristan Field-Jones you know, really in for Chandelier Cadence at CBCJOB. I mean, we don't have much kidnapping in, in the U.S. and Canada because prosecution is so high, you basically have a 95% chance of getting caught, and there are very stiff penalties. Um, compare that to Mexico, when you probably have a 95% chance of getting away with it, and it's possible the military police could be in on the kidnapping. KJ, uh, maybe time for a couple more questions. One that's bouncing around in my head is art imitation, imitates life and vice versa. What's the next thing that, you know, maybe authors or you might be aware of that's happening elsewhere that might be the next thing, the next trend in this uh, either virtual crime or actual crime around the world? Well, I mean, like I said, I think the, the most dangerous thing is that it used to be that locals were a lot more likely to be kidnapped in their countries, right, than, than tourists. It's just the media makes, you know, the reporting on the kidnappings going on by tourists. Um, but this is changing. It's a very, very difficult landscape. And I think people have to be very careful when they travel um, because it's becoming rampant. And uh, one thing for sure um, to watch out for, if you're going to somewhere that's a bit dicey, make sure that you get into a hotel car that you've organized with the hotel because taxis are a main way in certain places of grabbing kidnap victims. So just keep that in mind when you're traveling because you can imagine you jump into a cab, right, tell them where you want to go, and all of a sudden you're a captive audience, literally. All right, KJ Howe, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, KJHowe.com is the website. She is an international thriller author, an expert in kidnap and ransom uh, techniques. She also is the executive director of Thriller Fest, which is happening in New York City in July. So you can get all that information on her website. And again, I strongly recommend uh, reading The Freedom Broker. As one of the couch potatoes who watches lots of thrilling movies, I can tell you that this is as thrilling a story as I've ever read. So look for that. And look for Skyjack. Your next uh, book coming in April, uh, which I just received yesterday, by the way. I'm super excited to get into that. So thank you, KJ. Thanks for reading, and thanks for having me on, guys. And I, I hope everyone stays safe. All right, KJ Howe joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB. And again, this isn't about fear-mongering. This is about education. And uh, yeah, the cab stuff, never would have thought of that. I remember getting in a cab in Mazatlan uh, <laughs> at like three in the morning. Yes, yes. And there were a bunch of cab drivers standing around. They all looked at me like I was, like they were piranhas. And I thought, am I going to get out of this alive? I did, thankfully. But uh, yeah, scary stuff. So just be safe. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Shanley Fidal. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOP.